uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center. And circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we're going to take a deep dive into the classic sci-fi film. Some would say the film that launched all the science fiction films since 2001, A Space Odyssey. Straight away, we're going to kick it up to the satellite. Karen, why don't you give us some insight and information on this classic science fiction film known as 2001 a space odyssey well thank you larry well what can i say 2001 a space odyssey yes uh very much a classic sci-fi film some would say some would say maybe the greatest science fiction film of all time others would say you have to be out of your mind but Hmm. I, i would be amongst those to put it as kind of the the godfather of all science fiction films, released in 1968, actually made over the course of about two and a half years uh, by Stanley Kubrick, a famous director known for uh, films like Spartacus, Lolita, Doctor Strangelove, A Clockwork Orange, and so many other films. Um, this, uh, This film was also... Uh, the the child of science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, a British uh, sci-fi writer considered to be kind of in this triumvirate with Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein at at that time in the sixties, uh, kind of mm. the one of the giants of sci-fi. So um, when the film premiered in sixty-eight premiered April second, nineteen sixty-eight in Washington D.C., this was shot in a uh, large format, um, 65 millimeter panoramic projected on these curving Cinerama screens. It must have been fantastic 
to see at this premiere. Um, not really appreciated or understood immediately. In fact, the when it premiered, uh, people left the theater, you know, scratching their heads. Some people left during the intermission. Uh, the MGM Studios was a little bit freaked out by this. Uh, Kubrick himself went back and actually uh, cut 17 minutes of the film. This was mostly dialogue. Um, as we know now, we look at the film and it's it is not a dialogue heavy film. You know, there are large portions of the film that are almost silent or only have uh, uh, classical music. Sometimes all you hear is like the astronaut breathing in his spacesuit. So this film is really unusual in the sense that it's not dialogue driven. And in a lot of ways, it's not, there is a plot, but it's certainly not character driven. Uh, this is why, you know, it was a very difficult film for a lot of people, uh, to, to get or to deal with. I know my first exposure to it, um, I did not see it in the theater when I was a kid. I was too little, but they showed it on TV not too long after it came out. And I remember my dad had seen it and for days afterwards, he was angry about this movie. He, he kept going around <laughs> saying, well, there's no end. There's no end to this movie. They, they just, you have to make up the end yourself. They don't explain anything. <laughs> and so I hadn't seen the film. It was another case where I was small and it came on TV and I saw the first few minutes and I fell asleep. So I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, but years later, I saw it as a teenager on TV and I had that idea in my head from my dad, like, hey, there's no ending. There's no ending. So Old when I saw it. yells at clouds. <laughs> yes, yelling at clouds right so when i saw it i was kind of like well he's kind of right there isn't an ending and i didn't know how i felt about that i it was kind of disruptive to my whole idea of storytelling right but as the years have gone by i have become much more entranced with this film because it is very ambiguous it does require you to think a lot about the film and what's going on in the film um, it doesn't give you any easy answers. And it also is really designed to be a much more visual experience. It's not designed to be a, a very literal, straightforward, you know, experience where you're learning a lot of things. It's not narrative driven. You're not learning a lot of things from the, the dialogue. And this was all intentional. You know, this is something that Kubrick wanted to do. He experimented a lot in his films. He tried a lot of different things technically and also with storytelling. There were three basic goals, though, that, that Kubrick and Clark agreed upon that they wanted to do with 2001. And one is that they wanted to um, convey the, the wonder and beauty of space travel and that this was something that mankind needed to be doing. They also wanted to express the idea of intelligence in outer space other than human beings, that there was extraterrestrial life. And then the other thing they wanted to get across was this idea that what was man's place in the universe? Where was man going and, and what, you know, what did we, what could we aspire to? So these were basic concepts that they had. But the problem was they didn't really necessarily know while they were making the film exactly where they were going. They had started out with some different ideas. They were influenced by some short films they had seen. Um, one was called Universe. 
Um, and they took some of Clark's short stories and, and read through them and tried to come up with ideas and mostly used one called The Sentinel, which involved finding an artifact on the moon. And they used that as part of the basis for the film. But even as they were filming and putting things together, they still didn't have the final third of the film figured out. They were kind of doing it by the seat of their pants. They they had a basic idea, and they had a lot of feelings and impressions of what they wanted to do, but they didn't know all the details of it uh, necessarily as they were doing the work. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a, a movie that I think broke a lot of new ground technically. The effects obviously, um, you know, paved the way for Star Wars um, Close Encounters and, you know, Battlestar Galactic, all these other movies that and shows that came later. Um, it's breathtaking still to look at, uh, but it's more the, I think, the concepts that stick with people um, after you see the film. What about you guys? What do you think about 2001? Well, I watched it. Uh, <laughs> in the theater, I did see it in the theater, but not when it came, not when it came out. I saw okay. it like I saw it like in the seventies at the Tivoli Theater, playing with Fantastic Planet, not Forbidden mm. Planet. That would have been cool, but the animated <laughs> Fantastic Planet, which uh, to this day I have never watched since. But yeah, going back to two thousand and one. Um, yeah, I got the 4k version, so I was able to watch it really nice on, uh, mm-hmm. on my TV. Um, it, you know, basically it's all about evolution and evolution is sort of pushed forward by these monoliths. And I don't think it's the same monolith cause you see one back in, you know, caveman times or pre caveman times. And then you see see a couple like floating in space as they're going along. And then there's the one that's on the moon as well. Mm-hmm. So kind of like I was watching this. I asked Debbie, I go, whatever happened to all these monoliths that were like showing up in reality recently in the news? They were <laughs> popping up in Utah and other places. And then suddenly you didn't hear anything. So I don't know. But anyway... Um, from what I read, that there were aliens behind these monoliths. They just didn't want to show them. They wanted to kind of keep right. it mysterious and vague. And they also had, a, at one point, the monolith was going to be like this big machine with a monitor showing images and everything else. And, yeah, and then they decided to go more ambiguous with just the monolith. But, you know, at the beginning, you've got the ape that touches it. And then suddenly he picks up the bone and uses it as, as a tool. Now, of course, being the predecessor of man, they evolved and the first thing they came up with was a weapon. Not like fire or a wheel to get around or whatever. They came up with a weapon. But anyway, as, as, as the time went on, though, um, you know, there's the monolith on the moon. There's one floating in space, which... I had heard actually caused Hal to evolve. And that's when Hal started realizing that, you know, these humans are trying to 
disconnect me or this mission. He was questioning the mission and all that. And that's when he almost came, became kind of sentient. But, um, but then of course, you know, you've got the, uh, now I forgot to take the LSD before the ending. <laughs> so I didn't enjoy the light show as much as I probably could have. But, um, I mean, basically the room that, that he ends up in, that the astronaut ends up in, supposedly was created as an image in his mind by the aliens to make mm-hmm. him feel more at home. Like when you put a gorilla in a cage and you put all the, you put in all the plants and the shrubs and everything to make it look like his natural habitat so he feels more comfortable. Same type of thing. Now, what I questioned was, as he was, and they, and they were very interesting transitions because they didn't just like dissolve from one age to the next. It's like he'd be at a table and he'd look in the other room and there he is in bed and he's older. And then they cut to the vision of the guy in bed and he doesn't see his former self. So, and it just keeps going. Now, is that in real time or is that just to show that he's in this room for, you know, 50, 60 years or whatever until, until he dies and then evolves again into the space baby. And that sort of is returning to earth and then circle of life or whatever. That's where things would evolve again. But it's all about evolution and, and like I say, spurred on by this mysterious monolith. That's pretty much what I got out of it. Uh, I did think it was interesting that most of the dialogue was just throwaway stuff. It was mostly just, uh, you know, two people walking along. So, how's it going? Nice day. All right. You know, that type of dialogue. It wasn't anything that, like Karen said, advanced the story or gave you any kind of idea of what was going on. The only legitimate dialogue was when they were trying to figure out what to do with Hal and he's reading their lips. Again, it, it, it's not, it was, it's a classic film. It's not probably not going to um, entertain millennials, people that are used to laser battles and everything else. But it is a very, very accurate rendition of what it's like to be in space. It's not all lightsabers and saving princesses. It's pretty much you're not even warping. You're just like cruising <laughs> along at regular time and reading books and playing chess against a computer and, you know, sleeping in pods and whatever. It's uh, And again, and yeah, you know, when they're outside, there's no sound in space, so you don't hear anything. You'll hear his breathing which is what he hears it within his helmet. And then you'll also, uh, like the one scene where he's got to get into the airlock and he blows his hatch and he gets shot into the airlock. That whole scene has no sound whatsoever. No mm-hmm. music, nothing, just totally silent. So, well, uh, I mean, you think about the time this was made, right? This is the mid, mid to late 60s. Yeah. This is all during the uh, space race. And, of course, the the team on uh, 2001 worked very closely. They had some people on the production team who had worked with Werner von Braun. So this was all very, very accurate to what was going on with our space program, but just projected ahead 30 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, when so, you see the uh, the ships and the satellites and everything else, 
I mean, when I, when I was a kid back then, I was totally into space and you'd get these books and it's like, there'd be drawings by NASA of future spaceships. And this is what a spaceship going to Mars is going to look like or whatever. And it's the same type of design. Right. You know, they they aren't going all crazy on it. Yeah. They were working with the same people. So they were able to just project, you know, okay, if we take this technology, but we just, you know, uh, imagine what it's going to be like 30 years from now, this is where we'll be. So that's why you don't see the typical rocket ship with fins or, or flying saucer or what have you. That's why like the discovery, you've got this big ball with the centrifuge in it so that you've got gravity for the, uh, the astronauts. And then the engine compartment is way in the back so that the radiation is not killing the astronauts. You know, it makes complete sense. Um, and, and all the interiors are like that. And, and just like, you know, you see on the um, shuttle going, you know, to the moon, it's zero G. So like the pen floating in space and stuff like that, it's, it's all thought out. Well, I thought that was all amazing too, because if you look at the sets, like in the behind the scenes things, they made these huge sets that actually did revolve. So as they're, as they're walking along anti-gravity and they're, you know, walking along a walkway, they're actually revol- you know, turning the whole set as they're walking. And then uh, the pen was interesting because it was just a pen that they had lightly glued to a piece of glass. And they were actually revol- you know, turning this piece of glass in front of the camera. So you would see the pen look like it's floating. And then the uh, flight attendant, when she goes and like, plucks the pen out of the air and puts it in his pocket. She's actually plucking the, the pen, pulling it off the glass and then mm-hmm. putting it in his pocket. So there, you know, this is obviously way before CGI. So they have some pretty advanced ideas on how to do these practical effects and make them look totally believable. Yeah. It's amazing when you watch it to realize this is all practical effects work that there's no computer effects whatsoever in the film. I mean, they were even talking on the making of about how they were going to depict stars and, you know, which star fields would move and which would be static and how they present those, you know, in relation to the ships flying through them, et cetera. So, yeah, definitely a lot, a lot of thought going into it. Well, Commander. Larry, you've been very silent so far. 2001, mundane conversations in space. I'm sorry. I, uh, <laughs> what was it? 2001, a space idiocy. I think that was the mad magazine version. <laughs> you, you know, you guys are talking to the man that likes uh, the movie. We will not speak of whose mother is Martha. Um, I, you know, it, it's one thing to watch the movie as a kid, which I did. And uh, then I was fortunate enough to go to Disneyland when they still had the uh, Mission to the Moon hmm. ride, uh, was, which was basically was really cool. just, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just basically the, the seats kind of shaking and, and, you know, lifting up. But um, it made that ride a little more exciting, I think, for me, having the visuals from 2001. Um <laughs> And so then watching it as an adult, uh, right, I agree with Bob, evolution. I don't know that uh, I would consider it the best science fiction film ever. Uh, 
you know, and one of the things, not to jump too far ahead, but 2001 and then years later they did 2010 and by God, it was almost the same movie. Um, did either of you read the book? So I, thought, I saw 2010 when it came out, but I don't think I've seen it since. I think I remember it. it's more, it's not as ambiguous. It's more straightforward. No, that, so. it's very straightforward. I didn't want to watch it again because I didn't want to pollute my purity of essence <laughs> um, to as I watched 2001 um, you know Larry I have the book of 2001 and I don't think I've ever read it so I probably should do that how about you chief yeah I, th- I was thinking about that I never even owned the book but I don't know if the book explains more it I does mean, obviously you have words on a page so you can't just be you know, ambiguous images, but right. Well, this is one of the things um, in the writing process for the the movie that for whatever reason, Clark and Kubrick decided, well, we'll write the novel together. We'll do that first. And then we'll write the screenplay. Huh. And, and essentially what happened is Clark went off to write the novel. Kubrick didn't really write it, but Clark would send him, you know, drafts and Kubrick would say, Oh, okay. Yeah, no. And uh, still, when he he got like two thirds of the way through and they got to that part with this to the Stargate and like, I don't know what's going to come after Dave gets to the Stargate. And they still went ahead and said, well, we're going to start filming anyway. Uh, And then Clark came up with his version of what happened. But there were a lot of differences in the novel from the the completed film. Um, and my understanding, this is just my understanding from reading interviews and other stuff, is that, yeah, the book is about 80% similar to the, the completed film. So, yeah, I would like to go back and read it and just see how it's different. But there, but it does explain a lot more like what did the monolith do to the ape men? And, you know, why did the monolith on the moon send a signal? And, you know, it, it gives much more explanation. And that was one of the things originally the film was going to have narration. There was going to be a section at the beginning of the film that had a bunch of modern day experts talking about space travel and man's origins. It was going to be like 20 minutes long. And then they would, they would go into the movie and then there would be narration throughout the film explaining, you know, like the ape men, like what was going on with the ape men and then what was going on in space. And then Clark decided, no, this is overkill. I guess he wanted to make it more mysterious, which I think was the good decision to do actually. And they, they just cut all the, plans for narration i think they actually they do have they did have the 20 minutes of the documentary before the movie but they they cut that i don't know if they ever actually did all the narration for the film yeah it'd be interesting if that really existed if you could like go back and look at it but i know uh at clark's death they did destroy negatives for certain certain material for his films and i think that i think the narration the uh, 20 minute documentary stuff i think that was some of it that was destroyed because hmm. he didn't want people putting out copies of his movies that were not what he intended huh. like Zack snyder <laughs> <laughs> but 
I digress. Now, one thing I thought was interesting, obviously, was the use of classical music. And I read somewhere, and this was like after the the 4K Blu-ray, whatever came out, that they found an actual soundtrack that was recorded for 2001. And I guess Kubrick said he he originally used the classical music to illustrate to the composer, okay, this is what the kind of music I want in these scenes. And then mm-hmm. he ended up deciding, no, that's perfect. I'm keeping that. And so well, this whole soundtrack that was recorded was like thrown out. But somebody found yeah. it. And I think it's available somewhere. But It's it's another case of a director falling in love with his temp track. So he had, you know, shot it all with the temp track of classical music, not even using like a, a studio orchestra or anything, just using recordings. And then they, they hired Alex North, who was a composer that he worked with on Spartacus, to come in and do stuff. And he said, well, you know, this is, do it like this music I've been using. So North recorded a whole soundtrack, and he thought that soundtrack was going to be used. And he showed up at the premiere expecting to sit in his no, seat and geez. listen to the soundtrack. And then there's Richard Strauss, <laughs> Johann Strauss, all these classical composers so to say he was pissed oh, is man. putting it mildly i uh, uh, imagine yeah but i mean it works beautifully it's and again it's like uh if you think about all the sci-fi films that had come before you know you've got theremins and you've got all this electronic right. music and stuff so it was a big break um and you know, again, maybe maybe that paved the way for a John Williams to come in and do a Star Wars with, you know, a big orchestra. Right. I don't know. It's you can well, I, debate that. Yeah, I, I will say one of the things, and I'm sure this is true for many people who watch the film, is the the music. And there was almost a love affair with with these versions of space travel. And I think he made a good point at that time in human history. You know, we were it was a space race Mm -hmm. and there was an enamored nation, if not world, with going to the moon and orbiting the Earth. And, you know, the black and white pictures that we saw in video on TV or at Disneyland um, there, there was a romance and it's still, that part of the movie still works for me to this point, just the blue Danube, you know, and, and that very, it, it, a lot of people have made comments about the, uh, was it the last Jedi, the space chase? And it was just two spaceships traveling for 30 minutes of the film. Oh. And, uh, you know, uh, this was a lot different for me. There, it wasn't a battle. It wasn't a chase. It was just this, almost like watching a ballet. There's a love and an affinity to these visuals. Um, mm-hmm. at, least, at least that's how I saw it. Yeah, it was, what what it was, interrupted me, of course, was the astronaut. <laughs> that was the precursor of Darth Vader. <laughs> But no, I was when we were watching. Debbie was watching it with me, and when we were going through the whole light show at the end, and you know he's like floating <laughs> through there, I said, "You know, this is like Spock flying through V'ger." That's true. Same thing. Well, it's like they got they got enamored by the lighting effects or whatever effects, and just let them go on like way too long. Wow. 
Well, and they had to do that sequence because the, the uh, what was it, the memory wall, which was uh-huh. what they were originally going to do, they couldn't get that together. So they had to they come in and out. Right. do something else. So why not? But I mean, they aspired that the the, the Star Trek the motion picture was aspiring to be Star Trek's version of 2001, right? It was supposed right. to be a, a thought piece. It was supposed to be about where are we and, you know, at the end there is an evolution there, right? Because right. Decker joins with V'ger and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so I guess one of the things, you know, we talked a little about this uh, pre-recording, but, you know, the ambiguity of the film is is well yeah. known. And uh, for some, it's that's the intrigue of it. For others, that's what out, you know, causes them to be outraged. Um, but there are a lot of questions. And so, um, and I know Bob kind of raised a lot of that um, earlier, but, uh, you know, some of the things like with the ape men, the, the monolith shows up. So we can assume that this intelligence, whatever it is, God, aliens, whatever, puts the monolith there. And the monolith somehow triggers an evolutionary change in the, the ape men. Now, after, you know, going through interviews and reading stuff, um, it's clear that Kubrick and Clark intended there to be some sort of signal or something that, that physically changed the, the ape men's minds so that they evolved. But I always thought, I mean, I, and I knew that's probably what they intended, but I, I always thought, what if it was just that this was the first time these creatures had ever seen a manufactured item? If you think about it, they live in, a, in an environment where everything is natural. And then there's this perfectly smooth slab that is has right angles. They would never, ever have seen anything like this ever before. I would almost think something like that would be enough to cause a change in your brain that could trigger something like that. I don't know. That was just an idea I had that it could almost cause you to evolve, to start thinking new concepts, to see something so di- radically different from anything you'd ever seen before. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not an expert in, in uh, interspecies, uh, you know, thought processes, but, you know, in in nature, like with apes or um, I don't know dolphins or whatever, are there scientists? Are there musicians? Do they dream? Do they imagine? What what thought processes? You know, so obviously the one gorilla or, or ape got it, understood what the monolith was communicating, or or maybe it was by virtue of the shape, um, the concept of a tool. And how to utilize that tool for his or her betterment, whether it was to build or to kill or or whatever. Um, I think it was in one of the documentaries where they were saying that the the original concept was it was going to be like a clear monolith, and they'd yeah. project videos. You guys were seeing mm-hmm. right, and that's right. how it talked to the yeah. It just didn't. 
Sure. They whatever. actually made a clear plexiglass slab, but it didn't turn out looking very good. It, it was kind of greenish and weird looking. So uh, then they, they went with the, the flat black. Yeah, so I don't know. Some way, shape, or form, it helped push evolution, but whether it was by design or... Well, you have that one ape, that, well, the one that, you know, picks up the bone yep. and starts using it. Right, yeah. He actually went up and touched it. They were all, like, mm-hmm. really hesitant to even get near it. And he was the one that walked up, you know, went up and actually put his hand on it. And I don't know if the, I can't remember if the others touched it after that or if it was just. I think they touched it after he does. So he'd already had some sort of drive or instinct or whatever. A curiosity that over, overpowered his fear, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And so that's why I'm saying maybe he was a meant to be a leader or a soldier or, you know, they're, they're, not that there was a predisposition, but, you know, there was just something in him. Like I said, some some of us are musicians. Some of us are, uh, you know, natural leaders. Some of us are. And, and how, why is that? I mean, you know, that's well, some of us are commanders. Let me ask you this. <laughs> so it, it sort of implies this idea that progress only comes with aggression. Mm hmm. What do you think about that? Well, that was interesting. Uh, I think Bob had mentioned something about that earlier, too, that it was an, an, an evolution, an aggressive evolution or something of that nature. Well, he, uh, you know, the first thing that he, quote, invents or figures out yeah. is picking up a bone and using it as a weapon. I mean, he like, mm-hmm. you know, crushes that pig skull or whatever with it. And, uh, you know, how? His first evolution is to try to kill, you know, Dave right. and, and mm-hmm. yeah, the astronaut. Right. Um, so maybe there is something to, you know, war or aggression pushing us to evolve. Well, then, you know, you kind of have to wonder, was the monolith meant for for good, the, the betterment of humans or or not? Um I mean, time and time again, not just in science fiction, but in, in reality, negotiation and understanding, you know, most often works better than aggression. But there's always this, you know, I'm going to do this to you if you don't. And then it's like, well, wait, wait, wait. You know, if you do that, then we'll do this. And then that's going to happen. And then, you know, think of the children. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, OK, let's, you know. <laughs> well, you have to negotiate from a standpoint of power, right? Well, I mean, that that's debatable as well. So, I mean, you can stand there and say, well, let's talk about this. And then they smack you in the face and that's it. Right. So you have to at least have something to smack back if need well, be. And I don't want to get too political. None of us do. You know, we can kind of go on and on about world events and, and leaders and dictatorships. But yeah, but it's it's an interesting premise that mankind's evolution is driven by aggression it's a it's kind of a, a sad <laughs> premise well a lot I mean, of a lot of the a lot of the inventions that we have and the progress we've made was through war war unfortunately does speed up a lot of progress and yeah, i guess it gives you a sense tried. of urgency what do they say you know we try so hard to avoid it yet we're so good at it 
Um, there you go. I don't know, but but if if we're not, well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go <laughs> a philosophical road. Oh, that, it's like how uh, deep do we want to go in this? Well, and yeah. and you know, talking about the ape men, those are really impressive suits made by Stuart Freeborn, who later would make Chewbacca. And uh, I was startled to learn in my reading that um, the, uh, you know, the jaws and everything had to be articulated because Kubrick wanted them to be able to eat meat uh, after they, you know, discovered how to kill. And so Freeborn was like, well, we can, uh, you know, we don't have to make the jaws too powerful. We'll just fabricate the meat. And uh, Kubrick said, oh, no, I want to use real meat. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, no, that will get messy. The masks will smell. No, no, it won't look right unless it's real meat. This is another case where Kubrick would just demand on certain details, demand and demand. And the people around him just were like, uh, okay. And they Make had to so. come up with stuff. Well, so, you know, it's interesting. The, Unlike the Chewbacca suit, they, they were able to utilize Velcro and and, you know, you could take pieces off if Peter Mayhew had to use the restroom. Uh, in 2001, those ape suits, those poor men were peeing and pooping in those suits. And that really created. <laughs> oh, just kidding. <laughs> it made it very real. Um, well, you know, one, one thing I was wondering, too, was, I mean, obviously this came out what, a year after Planet of the Apes. Uh, they came out the same year, I believe. I believe so. Yeah, so it wasn't like one. It's not like one could learn from the other as far as the yeah. the makeup effects or whatever. Because I mean, yeah, if you think about it, it's like Stanley Kubrick wanted his apes to be able to chew meat. Yeah. But on Planet of the Apes, the apes had to talk and interact and mm-hmm. emote. So the ape makeup on Planet of the Apes was, I think, you know, years ahead of what Kubrick came up for two thousand one, but. Well, yep. I think they were trying to achieve very different looks. You know, the the ape makeup, I, I love the ape makeup on Planet of the Apes, but it's it's a very stylized, kind of evolved ape, whereas the ape makeup for 2001 is still a very primitive, halfway between ape and man. Um, I mean, I think it's effective. I really like the way it looks. But again, like to Larry's point, they didn't have to talk. They just basically had to screech at each other. And then at a certain point, they had to have masks that could chew uh, real meat, which the actors really did not enjoy. But, which um, could masticate. Imagine. <laughs> but, yeah, it was pretty unpleasant stuff. But no, there is a, a part in the one of the documentaries on the, on the Blu-ray where they talk to some of the suit actors. They were in the ape suits. In fact, they speak mm. to the one who was the main ape. Yeah, and, Dan Richter. Uh, yeah. And he, yeah, he was saying he, he would go to the zoo and just sit there in front of a gorilla cage and stare at this gorilla for hours. And he'd do that like every day for a week or something just to, to learn its mannerisms and movements and how it does things. So, they, uh, yeah, other than Kubrick saying, he's got to eat meat. I mean, the actors themselves did a <laughs> lot of... Uh, a lot of background study on how to move, how to act as, as apes. Oh, yeah. And and all the actors who played the apes were either mimes or dancers, you know, people who were very physical, knew how to move their bodies. And I think it was successful. I thought that, you know, it's a very um, 
convincing segment in the film. And it's really interesting, too, because I didn't realize for years that like the water hole and the, the caves and stuff, that's all filmed uh, on the studio soundstage. Yeah. I, yeah. I really thought it was external, but they uh, the way they filmed it and lit it and everything is just fabulous. Well, if you think about the importance of that scene, I mean, if you suddenly had a bunch of people in gorilla suits like out of like a Three Stooges short or something, <laughs> then, you know, people are going to lose interest or people, you know, they're not going to be in the right mindset to follow the movie beyond that. It's like immediately you're put out of this film as like, oh, a bunch of guys in gorilla suits, you know. That's a good point. You know, mm-hmm. Abbott and Costello, the Three Stooges, Laurel and Hardy, if one of those apes showed up. <laughs> if any of those apes threw a pie, then it's all over. Right. If you, if, you, uh, if you set that, that scene to like the Benny Hill music. That's right. Yakety sax. I can imagine Kubrick on, on set. You can't have any pudding unless you eat your meat. <laughs> That reminds me, as I was doing my research for this, uh, somebody set the whole sequence of uh, the infinite and beyond where, you know, Dave goes through the Stargate to uh, Pink Floyd's uh, Echoes. (laughs) And it works surprisingly well. It's on YouTube. So if you have like 20 some minutes you want to spend just doing that, it it works really well. Um, Getting back to the movie... um, one of my questions always is, you know, Hal is a very fascinating character, probably the most interesting character in the movie. And um, well, thank you, Karen. <laughs> and the thing is, it's sort of like there's a lot of questions like, why does Hal lose it? He, and there's there's hints, I guess, that he's losing it before we even realize it, because apparently in the chess game, he lies to um, Frank about how many moves he has left. Uh, I didn't realize this until I was watching one of the documentaries where, you know, he tells Frank when they're playing chess, you know, oh, I think you missed something. And he basically tells him, you know, the next move he'll be checkmate. And apparently there's like two more moves that Frank could make. Huh. And then, you know, the uh, he, he tells the guys that, uh, oh, this, you know, antenna is going to go out and they go out and check it and there's nothing wrong with it. And so we know something's going wrong with Hal. Now, there's a lot of speculation that Hal is losing it because he knows the secret of the mission, but he can't tell Dave and Frank um, about it. See, but uh, thought- then there's also the idea like, like um, Bob said, that maybe the aliens are kind of messing with him. What well, do you guys? I think when when they encounter, there's that one monolith kind of floating in space, and supposedly that uh, causes Hal to kind of become sentient, and he's now thinking for himself, and he's real. He's questioning the mission, and he realizes by reading their lips that uh, they're trying to turn him off. So that's when he comes up with this problem that they have to go out of the ship to to uh, fix, and then he's not going to let them back in, mm. which I well, thought was interesting because Frank is still alive, man, when, when Dave has him in the in the pod's claws. Is he? I thought he was dead by then. No, nah, because you see him moving. And suddenly oh, it's he? like, ah. you know, Dave's got to get back in. He just like flicks him off into space. Yeah, there he goes. Ah. But um, I, uh, but no, I mean, 
Yeah, inter- interestingly, you know, um, you guys know where they came up with the name Hal? Well, it's supposed to be heuristic algorithm. A lot of people think it's one more than IBM. Right. But I know Arthur C. Clarke said, it, no, no, it, it's just a lucky coincidence that it was mm. like IBM. Right. Well, but there's also a thing on the uh, documentary where they talk about when scientists were first or technicians were first trying to come up with computers that could talk. And the first thing they had the computer do was sing Daisy. Daisy. So that's why that's like in the, in the movie where Hal's like, yeah. you know. Uh, that was one of the other I'll sing you a song, things. Dave. Yeah, yeah. There are little things like that that, that stick with me. Him singing Daisy. What was it at Monster Palooza? Didn't they have the actors there walking? Yeah. Hal. Yeah, that was really cool. They had Gary Lockwood and Keir DeLay. And, uh, oh, it was so cool because they interviewed them and had them talk about their experiences on uh, 2001. And, uh, gosh, that must have been, I want to say maybe it was back in 2014, 2013, something like that. Mm. A number of years. They were really, um, really still very enthusiastic about the film. I know Care Delay told that story about how when he comes through the airlock, he was really jumping down about 60 feet. <laughs> that was terrifying. Um, yeah, it was just amazing the stories they had about filming it and uh, working with Kubrick. And, uh, you know, you could tell clearly they had an enthusiasm for the film and it had been a, a unique experience in their careers. Or like how on set the voice for how was done by like an assistant director who had a cockney accent it's <laughs> like okay I, I can't do that dave i can't do that sorry so, sorry dave <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a, a real joy uh highlight of one of our monster paloozas for me anyway i miss that that must have been like one of the really early ones Maybe so. I was trying to think the earliest Monster Palooza we went to, and I want to say maybe it was 2011 or 12. I'd have to, yeah, 2012, I'm thinking. Because we were trying to replace our Comic Con experience once Comic Con became too expensive and difficult yeah we had we had heard about it and i know bob had talked about it a number of occasions because bob had been going for a number of years and was telling us about the monster um museum or whatever they had the walkthrough and stuff and yeah i have to go back and look at my monster palooza programs and see what the oldest one is yeah Uh, i can i can go through my pictures and look maybe if i find one i'll slap it up on the uh the blog page, but yeah, they, that was really cool to see those guys there and uh, hear them yeah. tell their experiences. You know, so, I, real quickly, one of the things that, that struck me also was the way that the stewardess would walk on that transport ship. I don't know if they filmed it in reverse and then played it forward or if she just had this really great anti-gravity stumble to her (laughs) visually to me it still catches my attention when she's going to get the pen 
Yeah, and when she's just like walking, oh, yeah. you know, around that, it's, it's just like this weird, you know, shaking, stepping. Yeah. yeah. I think she was drunk at the time. <laughs> what were you yeah. saying, Walker? Sorry. Oh, no, I was just thinking about um, kind of looking over some of my notes and thinking about some other stuff. Um, of course, the, the, the trip at the end, you know, when Dave goes through the Stargate, everybody knows that, like, Doug Trumbull filmed most of that with his slit scan technology, which I have watched a couple of things on documentaries now. So I think I understand it, but trying to explain it is difficult. I mean, it's basically a slit with images being pulled past it and the camera being pulled towards the slit. So that's about as good as I can explain it. It was, um, they were very proud of it. I saw that part of the documentary where he's like, we could film it forward. We could film it backward, you know. And honestly, I couldn't tell if it was forward or backward when I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I thought was funny, too, in the, one of the documentaries was like, yeah, it's like, you know, the, the attendance was dropping. They were ready to pull it from theaters. And then some college kids went there, uh, took some weed or LSD and. All of a sudden, five more people would show up. Ten more people would show up. And they're like, it's the greatest trip at the end of the film. One of the adverts or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the ultimate trip. Yeah. That's right. It's funny. They started marketing it towards the psychedelic generation. <laughs> but it's only – I timed it this last time I watched it. I got – like Bob, I got the 4K version. And I was sitting here. And that actual whole thing is only about ten minutes long. You know, the – with the psychedelic stuff. So they had like the slit scan stuff. Then they had stuff where they, they flew in a helicopter over different like Scottish, uh, landscapes. And then they did some stuff with the uh, color in the film. And then they had stuff like the very earliest visual, um, uh, effects that they had done, which were back in New York where Kubrick had this big tank with like, oil and stuff in it and they would drop paint in it and so the stuff where you see like the little white blobs kind of shooting out it's done in like a tank and it's just little drops of like paint and stuff shooting across with really high exposure uh photography they would play stuff like that at concerts later on or like at the <laughs> laserium and stuff no yeah they would use overhead projectors with a like a large Petri dish with oil, and then they would like, yeah, drop Jefferson's airplane and <laughs> yeah. at the oh, did, did you guys ever have those bottles with the the paint and the glitter and whatever inside, and you like shake them up, and they make all these swirling patterns and stuff? I remember seeing those. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have one, but I know what you're talking about. My Same uncle things. had like a lava lamp that was similar. To, it would like whirl with glitter and oil and stuff in it and you'd, i wasn't on lsd at the time i was a kid but you just stare at it like wow i sure wished he was <laughs> not that you knew yeah not but no i mean yeah back then i mean you had a lot of stuff like that you know you'd have like you know lights that would you know revolve and swirl and blink behind you know prism screens and things and yeah i mm. mean everybody everybody was getting into that stuff so it's not like i mean that was like innovative at the time mm-hmm. well it's something different to see up on the big screen I'll, I'll give you that much i mean we we have a pretty big tv here i was watching it on but i could just imagine you know 70 millimeter or whatever and just <laughs> well i've been lucky now to see 2001 in a theater 
not, you know, God, I wish I could have seen it back in the days where theater screens were gigantic, but I saw it, I think, in 2016 and 2018 when they, you know, ran it out to theaters again. And uh, it is something, if you get it, well, if you like it and you get a chance to see it in a theater. <laughs> and if theaters ever open again. Yeah, they yeah. will. But, uh, yeah, it's cool. I mean, I enjoy watching it on the TV, but um, it's it's something to see it in a theater. And I will say, you know, like, even though I think this is a great science fiction film, this is not a film that I would just, like, if I was flipping channels and it was on, you know, I wouldn't stop and watch it the way I watch, like, a Star Trek movie or Star Wars movie. I, I can't jump into the middle of, like, 2000. 2001 is more of a commitment for me, you know, it's like you have to make up your mind like, OK, I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch this because it's like you have to make that that deal with it, because I know it is like a thing you have to sit through. And it's not just like, wow, wow, bam, you know, lights, cannons. What do you always say, Larry? Kung Fu and dynamite. dynamite. Kung Fu and dynamite. dynamite. Woohoo! You know, it's something you got to like. It's like sitting in you know, contemplation or whatever. Kung Fu um, Dynamite is a code Karen and I would use, like the Robert Downey's Sherlock Holmes, and there's just too much Kung Fu and dynamite <laughs> in the <laughs> Sherlock Holmes movie. Just too much action, you know, not enough story. You know, at some point we should uh, do an episode where we go off and make our lists of, like, the top ten science fiction movies of all time and then come back together or something, because uh, it, it would be, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what we I, come I'd up like with. I'd like to do that in the ahead of time, solicit on Twitter and Facebook some of our listeners hmm. and see, uh, you know, kind of do a little shout-out for uh, Steve or... Uh, yeah, uh, some, or... Yeah. Yeah. See but, who comes uh, up with what. Things that we're working on... Um, one of the things that I think if I watch 2001 again, every time Hal comes on, I'll, I'll kind of turn the volume down and do his voice in a Cockney accent. Oh, <laughs> I'll know what you've been. I'll read lips. That's why, mate. You dirty <laughs> bastards. I'll know what you were going to do. <laughs> I do feel like it's a movie that every time I watch it, I kind of pick up on something different. It's sort of like I, I'll read The Lord of the Rings every three or four years and I'll get a little something new from it. So I feel like there's enough hidden things in the film. That is it's cool. That, that's the kind of love affair I have with Phantasm. It's like I'll, I'll watch it again after a while. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I didn't pick that up, you know, before. Yeah, I mean, 2001, I, I can't remember the last time I watched it before watching it for this mm. it'd been a long time <laughs> well i give you credit bob you have the 4k and, and stuff i had to uh, i had to watch it off online so this really is a film that i probably should have in the library mm. and then went out i mean 4k wasn't it wasn't even that expensive either it was pretty cheap you know what one thing larry and i had mentioned uh, i think we were texting uh, about there's not a lot of product, uh, you know, toys or anything for for 2001. But I was thinking there were models at the time that it came out. Bob, did you have any of the models for 2001? No, not even a lunchbox. Ah, oh. man. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't. You know, it's like, like I said, I did not see it when it first came out. It was it was later on. And it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, that was cool. But I didn't like 
get into collecting anything, you know, involved with it. No posters, mm-hmm. no stills or lobby cards or anything like that. I don't think there was a lot. I, I mean, I know Planet of the Apes, you know, oh, had some good marketing, you know, and then later, obviously, Star Trek and Space 1999 and, you know, all that stuff. But you never really saw a lot of, like, books or posters. Well, it wasn't a movie that appealed to young kids, you know. Sure. I mean, you're not going to have a young kid able to sit through this movie very well. I mean, well, there, there was a tab of acid that was called Hal. So, I mean, that was a little <laughs> Yeah, you're not going to see any Mego figures of, you know, Moonwatcher or, you know, Dave. Lego did come out with a monolith back in the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I'll keep my eyes peeled for I I would love to have like a little miniature, you know, thing of like the monolith and the, the ape men. That would be kind of cool. That would have made a That's, cool Aurora model, but... Yeah. Yeah. That would have been neat. Who knows? There's probably something out there somewhere. Well, I'm sure someone's yeah. done a garage kit by now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, my friends, uh, this was an interesting podcast for me. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it! <laughs> <laughs> and I am glad you enjoyed it. Um, I hadn't seen the film, like Bob had said, for, God, a good five ten years um it's it's good i mean you know i i'm with karen if it came on tv i don't know that i'd watch um you know start watching it but um every every couple of years or so i think it's it's a good thing to put in the old dvd uh, blu-ray player and just kind of experience you pick up different things like karen had said that you may not have picked up before any any last minute comments or questions or anything you guys have before we get into our sensor sweep not really i think we've covered pretty much everything that i'm i'm just praying to god no one ever tries to remake this film that's all i'm going to say it's i don't ever want to see anybody touch this film thank you bob (laughs) thank you karen (laughs) this now concludes our podcast Hey, I have, I have a sensor. Except, please don't interrupt me. <laughs> Still read lips. Sing us a song, Larry. <laughs> Oi, yes, I, look here. <laughs> I'd like to hear that very much, Hal. Daisy. <laughs> Dave. Dave, stop messing with me, Dave. Okay, okay. I, I, another half hour of Larry doing Hal impersonation. All right, it's time for our sensor sweep. Take it away, Walker. All right. Well, fitting with the topic this week, I have an excellent book. You say. Oh, yes. I've got a very fine (laughs) book here. This book is called Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece by Michael Benson. Mm. So, and it's endorsed by Tom Hanks. So, you know, it's got to be good. Um, this is a whopping big old book, almost 500 pages. Yeah, oh, it's a big one. It's a big one, let me tell you, son. But, uh, and it's got pictures, too. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I could have made through 500 pages without pictures, I'll tell you. Yeah, you need some, you need some pictures, let me tell you. Um, but it's, uh, it is really, if you're really into 2001, 
and you really want to know all the details about where the ideas came from, how Kubrick and Clark met, their personal lives, um, you know, uh, that Clark lived in Ceylon and walked around in a basically a towel all the time, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> what kind of book is this again? <laughs> it's a uh, it's an interesting book, Bob. Oh, okay. French. It's uh yeah, it's Swedish. Um, it's men but, in know, towels. It's great. We, but seriously, it's it's uh, packed full of details about the whys and wherefores of the film, how it was made, the difficulties. It doesn't sugarcoat, but it's it's also a very fascinating look at Kubrick. So if you are a fan of Kubrick's films, this will give you some insight into him as a director. Um, I can't say he is a fascinating man in the sense that he was dedicated to his work, really wanted to do good work. His drive on 2001 was he wanted to make a good sci a really great science fiction film. He felt a great science fiction film had not been made yet, but he also is very, was very exacting and this could be very hard on a lot of the people around him. So, um, yeah, fascinating book. You can get it off Amazon or other fine book retailers. So check it out. Thank you very kindly. Walker, uh, Karen, Bob, always a pleasure. Um, if you're listening to us on YouTube, please comment, like, and subscribe. If you're listening to us on any other app or um, over on our webpage, please continue to do so and spread the good word of Planet 8. Thank you very kindly. Take care and be safe. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.blogspot.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. Hell, do you read me? Hello, hell, do you read me? Do you read me, hell?